I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. <laughs> oh, what happened? <laughs> I thought that was a good one. I like uh, it. <laughs> it sounded like somebody stepped on a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> dear. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Introvet's podcast. Hello. JJ has a cold edition. <laughs> yeah, this might be fun. So JJ is going to try to keep her voice long enough for us to get through uh, our episode today. Uh-huh. I sound like a 12-year-old boy. This, so I apologize. Oh, well, you know, it's okay. Yeah, it is what it, it is. It happens. I mean, everybody, we're just you're just a person. <laughs> yeah. we, you just got to get on. I mean, we're fine. <laughs> so today we have a case presentation for everybody. As always, we are presenting a real case, but some details about the case have been changed to disguise the identity of the patient, the owner, and the veterinarian. And JJ is going to lead us off with the case presentation. Uh, today we have Molly. She's a two-year-old female spade domestic short hair who's being presented by the owner for urinating outside the litter box. Uh, the owner's been finding drops of urine around the house, which is not cool, Molly. And mm. the pet's leaving stains when laying on her bed, blanket, and other soft items like kitties sometimes like to do, which is very rude. Molly is eating and drinking normally. There's been no vomiting or diarrhea or other clinical signs observed by the owner. Well, this is interesting right off the bat. So I think that we're going to have to be really careful in questioning the owners about the urinary signs because, you know, a cat leaving drops around the house and then also leaving stains when she's laying on her bed, that that's weird. That's almost like mm -hmm. more like incontinence symptoms. Yeah. So sometimes owners will see fluid around the house and like assume that it's urine and it really won't be urine. So I'm going to want to question the owner really carefully and try to determine, is it really urine or is there fluid coming from some other place? And those other places that we think about would be like maybe the anal sacs, you know, is the cat expressing her anal sacs? Ugh. Could it be diarrhea um, and not urine? Because sometimes a stool will be so watery that owners think it's urine and it's not could it be saliva? Is she drooling and leaving drops of drool around and the owners just think that it's urine? Mm -hmm. So never, um, never hear the patient is leaving drops of urine on the floor and think for sure the owner's right about it being urine. Definitely dig into that a little bit more. So upon further questioning, the owner reports that to the patient is urinating in the litter box normally most of the time. Um, the owner's not seeing any grossly visible blood spots that the pet's leaving around the house. The drops do have sort of a foul odor, but the odor's different from the typical anal sac fluid smell, so not that fishy gross smell. The owner reports that the drops are definitely coming from under the tail, not the mouth, so we know what end it's coming from. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, the drops appear to be coming from the vulva and do not have the appearance of stool. The pet's producing normally formed stools. The owner has not noted any urinary straining or vocalization when the pet's in the litter box. When she is in the litter box and urinates, the amount appears normal, and the owner can hear the sound of a solid urine stream. So we've ruled out some of those other possibilities there. 
Yeah, so um, that's interesting. I think we just need to go ahead and move on to our physical exam to try to figure out what's happening. Physical exam, uh, the patient's bright, alert, and responsive. Heart and lung sounds are normal. Eyes, ears, and oral cavity are normal. Anal sacs have a normal appearance. The abdomen palpates normally. Uh, The urinary bladder is small and flaccid. During the bladder palpation, a few drops of cloudy urine fell into the table from the vulva, and there were no other remarkable findings. Okay, let's go through some differentials. So we feel pretty confident that the fluid is coming from the vulva since we observed the drops during physical exam. Based on that, a urinary issue does seem likely. Another potential source of fluid from the vulva could be the reproductive tract, but the pet has been spayed, so that seems much less likely. So let's hit some differentials. Feline lower urinary tract disease. This is a syndrome of cyclic bladder inflammation that we see in both male and female cats. We talked about this a little bit in our urethral obstruction episodes. Urinary tract infection, like with a bacterial organism. This is not very common in a cat of this age, but it's also not impossible. Incontinence, meaning urine is coming out of the kitty without the kitty realizing it. So this may be. But the owner is not really describing large amounts of urine. So the cat is not like accidentally fully releasing her bladder. And the owner is not noticing, you know, constant urine dribbling or anything. These are really just kind of spots that she's seeing. But we'll put it on the list. Urolithiasis, a.k.a. bladder stones. These can create pretty much any type of urinary symptom from blood in the urine to straining to dysuria, just of any type, because they create inflammation in the bladder. So if, say, the kitty cat was kind of walking around and the stone's hanging out in there and there's taking up a lot of space and they kind of feel like, oh, I've got to go, you know, maybe they are urinating like tiny drops um, and the owner's just not seeing the cat posture to do it. I mean, it's plausible. And then lastly, you know, we can see masses or tumors inside of the urinary bladder. Those would be pretty uncommon in a cat this age, but again, not impossible. I've seen strange things happen before. It's lower on the list of suspicions, but we still need to sort of keep it in mind. As always, our differential list is what is going to guide our recommended testing. So it would be great in this case if we could start with collecting a urine sample and performing a urinalysis. Ideally, that urinalysis would be performed on a sterile urine sample, like one that we collected via cystocentesis. That's where we go in with a needle and collect urine samples straight from the bladder. And it would be ideal to go ahead and image the bladder as well. So we'd be talking about either radiographs or ultrasound. JJ, what happened in this case? Um, So the bladder was not of uh, sufficient size for cystocentesis. So the drops collected during the physical examination were analyzed. There was rod-shaped bacteria, red blood cells, and white blood cells noted in the sample, but there were no crystals. Hmm. Imaging of the abdomen was discussed with the owner, but that was declined for now. And a diagnosis of a urinary tract infection was made, and the patient was starting on clavamox orally and given instructions to recheck in two weeks. Hmm. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's a reasonable course of action, although urinary tract infections aren't really that common in young cats. We sometimes do see them. And I think in a case like this where we don't get a full urine sample, we've got a patient um, who's having symptoms and an owner who is very distressed by the symptoms. 
I think this is a reasonable course of action. We're seeing bacteria on cytology, so responding to that with an antibiotic is reasonable. Mm-hmm. So what happened at the recheck? At the recheck visit, the owners reported that the pet was doing well at home. Um, the pet was still eating, drinking normally, no new symptoms noted, and the owner had continued to see drops of fluid in the house for a few days after starting the antibiotic. However, no further drops were noted after about one week, and the pet seemed to go back to normal. Hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's pretty exciting. Um, but we have a lot of recording time left, so I'm guessing that there's more <laughs> to the story. So let's talk about the plot twist. What happened next? So uh, the patient was next presented for evaluation about a month after the initial visit, and the owners reported that the pet was again leaving drops of fluid around the house, and the fluid was stanky. Oh. (laughs) The pet was still using the litter box normally most of the time. The pet was still eating and drinking, but the owners noted that the pet was eating a little less than normal and seemed to be laying around more than usual. Physical exams showed no new findings. Today, however, the bladder was large enough to get a cysto sample. Since the symptoms had returned and the patient wasn't feeling well, diagnostics were approved by the owner. So full minimum database was approved by the owner. Um, That includes a urinalysis, a complete blood count, and a chemistry profile. And radiographs of the abdomen were also performed. What did those tests show? The urine collected via cysto seemed grossly normal. It was clear there was no foul odor. The urinalysis showed no significant abnormalities. However, the drops of fluid were noted to be coming from the vulva during the exam again, and analysis of this fluid again showed red blood cells, white blood cells, and rod-shaped bacteria, and that fluid had a bad odor to it. Okay, so the sample collected from the bladder, the urine, is completely normal. Mm -hmm. So that means that the weird fluid coming from the vulva is not coming from the urinary tract. Yeah, it's coming from the reproductive tract. Okay, we got to rework then our differential list. So updated differentials in a spayed cat stump pyometra. So we can see stump pyometra sometimes in our patients that are spayed, and that happens when the stump the portion of the uterus that's left behind after a normal spay becomes infected. Now, usually that's due to an underlying cause like an ovarian remnant, meaning we've accidentally left a piece of the ovary behind because it's that hormonal influence from the ovary that would create a stump pyometra situation in the first place. So so I will put that on our list. And really, that's the only other differential for a spade cat because the uterus and ovaries from a spade cat would not be there anymore. So the only part of the reprotract that should be in this cat is just that little stump. So, okay, what did the other test results show? So the complete blood count showed a mature neutrophilia with a left shift. That means that there are more neutrophils, which is a type of white blood cell, in circulation than there should be and that the population of neutrophils contains an unusual amount of immature cells. How high was the neutrophil count? How high was it? It was very high. It was uh, 34,000 per microliter. That is really high. So for reference, <laughs> a normal neutrophil count in a cat would be somewhere generally in the, in the 2,300 to 10,000 per microliter range. So this is like you know, three and a half times the top end of the normal range. Uh, Now, that varies depending on the machine and the lab, but that's just a general guideline. 
The chemistry profile showed a mild acetemia, which is an elevated BUN and creatinine, also kidney values. And the radiograph showed a large tubular organ in the abdomen, which was consistent with a distended uterus. Uh-oh. Uh, the cat was diagnosed with pyometra. So this cat is not spayed after all. Nope. <laughs> Oopsie. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, nope. Cat was not spayed. Uh, the abdomen was clipped and no space scar could be found either. A review of the record revealed that the owners of the pet had reported her as surgically altered when she presented for her first exam. The cat had been adopted from a rescue group, and the owners had paperwork which matched the cat's microchip number and indicated the pet had been surgically altered. However, the rescue paperwork had originally indicated that the cat was a male. Male had been marked through, and female was handwritten above. Okay, so we're starting to get some indications that maybe a paperwork mix-up has occurred. (laughs) Not cool. Well, yeah, this isn't exactly related, but this reminds me of of somewhat of a similar case that I had where a kitty cat that had been adopted by a rescue group, a, a boy kitty, had been assumed to be neutered because no testicles were present. And the owners kept bringing him in, saying, like, he has to have a UTI. His urine smells terrible. And we had worked this cat up and done urinalyses and, you know, imaging and done all of this stuff. And finally, I was just like, I don't understand. Like, you know, the urine looks normal. What is the smell? So we boarded the cat. And the next day when we came in, it was like, oh, my God, who left an unneutered male cat in this hospital? And we were like, oh, no. <laughs> so um, actually to to prove that this cat wasn't neutered and was actually a bilateral crypt orchid, I extruded the penis and saw little barbs, which is a testosterone mediated appearance change to the penis. So if there if that cat had been neutered. There would be no barbs. I actually have that photo. We'll, we should post it. Uh, it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's another example of a time when I had a kitty cat um, who everybody just assumed was neutered actually not be neutered. We yeah. did uh, explore him and find the testicles and the foul odor stopped after <laughs> he was neutered. It's so, a miracle. And I think this is a really good argument for... Markers of sterilization on pets. So as an even further aside for just a second, a lot of people are familiar with these from like the spay-neuter clinic. So there'll be a little tattoo on the abdomen. And some private practices actually do this as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've had a lot of people be like, why would you do that if you're not a spay-neuter clinic and all this? This is a reason why, you know, like Mm -hmm. sometimes even in a boy, it's hard to tell for sure. You know, is it neutered or is the animal like having a problem? You know, I actually just had just the other day a dog that was presented for um, a completely unrelated issue. And I noticed that I couldn't feel testicles and the chart listed as an intact male so when i was talking to them about the issue i was like oh by the way i noticed there are no testicles when did you have them neutered and they were like what we haven't Mm -hmm. and i'm like uh Mm -hmm. and they're like uh (laughs) i had like me plus three other people double check and be like no we definitely don't feel testicles so (laughs) this was um this was a dog that they were planning to use for breeding and um hopefully bilateral crypt orchid i guess (laughs) <laughs> We're going to find out. But anyway, this is very. Anyway, okay. 
We've gotten way off topic. My bad. But <laughs> I think that, th- that these types of cases present a really good argument for everyone doing those marks of sterilization because you might save another practitioner a lot of headache down the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Okay, JJ, what yeah. happens next in our case? So the veterinarian called the rescue group and a kitten mix-up was identified. Mm-hmm. At some point, the microchip number associated with the intact female cat, a kitten when she was adopted, was paired accidentally with the paperwork for a male kitten who had been castrated. This paperwork mix-up resulted in the sex eventually being corrected on the forms. However, no one double-checked that the surgically altered designation was correct. This paperwork error followed the unspayed female kitten and resulted in the wrong signalment at presentation as an adult cat. No bueno. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about signalment, what we're talking about is a detailed description of the pet. Things like age, breed, sex, and reproductive status. And we get this as an important part of the history because it contributes a significant degree to the potential problems that the patient might be presenting with. In this case, had the signalment been correct, something like a pyometra would have been on the original differential list from the beginning, and we might have been able to resolve the case more quickly. Yes, that is very importante. It is. So, JJ, we discussed pyometra, which is a uterine infection, a bit when we were um, talking about surgeries with Dr. Plunkett. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was earlier this season. And we also talked about it a little bit when we did our false pregnancy episode last season. But today Mm -hmm. we're going to go ahead and take a deep dive into pyometra. What is pyometra, Dr. Greider? Pyometra is separative inflammation of the uterine wall. Basically what that means is the uterus fills with pus. Yum. Mm. So a neutrophil-rich exudate fills the uterus. <laughs> that you... sounds way more fancy than pus. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet not very relatable. I was like, I got a zit. It's filled with neutrophilic-rich exudate. Yep, that's accurate. <laughs> yep. Lord. Now, usually pyometra is associated with bacterial infection, but not always. About 20% of cats with pyometra and somewhere between 10 and 26% of dogs with pyometra actually don't have bacterial involvement. When bacteria is involved, E. coli is the most common organism isolated, Uh, but others have been identified. The uterus becomes infected usually when bacteria enters the vagina during estrus because the cervix is more relaxed than normal. The pathogenesis of pyometra is not fully understood. There is some sort of a connection between pyometra and cystic endometrial hyperplasia. Uh, These are often associated, but both conditions can occur independently, so we don't really understand exactly what that association is. Bacteria and their toxins hanging out in the uterus lead to local infection of the uterus and inflammation that inflammation becomes systemic or widespread in the body. We can develop endotoxemia, sepsis, and systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Essentially, bacteria create toxins, creating widespread inflammation. And endotoxemia is sort of the sickness that you get in your whole body when you have an area of infection where the bacteria is leaking these toxins into your system. 
In general, there are two types of pyometra, open and closed. What determines open versus closed pyometras is the degree to which the cervix is relaxed. So in closed pyometras, the cervix is closed and exudate, the gross pus hanging out in the uterus, can't drain. This increases the risk of systemic absorption of bacterial toxins and creates worse symptoms. Open pyometras can also be severe, but the ability of that gross exudate to drain out of the cervix is associated with a decrease in the incidence of endotoxemia. In one report, 77%, so about three quarters of the closed pyometras in dogs developed sepsis, which is like widespread bacterial infection, very bad. But only about half of open pyometras did. E. coli infection can also create a transient glomerular and tubular dysfunction in the kidneys. Basically, what happens is the toxins that the E. coli secretes affects the kidneys and decreases their ability to function correctly. And this might create symptoms of increased thirst in urination, so polyuria, polydipsia, and low urine concentration. Hmm. So based on that information, our kitty cat uh, had an open pyometra. And she was leaving little drops of joy, otherwise known as pus, all over their house. That's really gross. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about diagnosis of pyometra. Now, that usually starts with a physical exam. So what sorts of changes will we typically see in the history and physical exam of patients with a pyometra? Cats with pyometra are typically presented within six weeks of estrus. For dogs, it's usually two to four months. Important history to take includes previous pregnancies, recent breeding attempts, time elapsed since last estrus, and administration of exogenous hormones. Yeah, so one important example of an exogenous hormone, exogenous meaning coming from someplace outside of the body, would be animals whose owners might be using topical creams and sprays that contain hormones. And this is really common in like perimenopausal women will take hormone replacement therapy. And I've actually seen where, you know, a a client was applying those creams to her forearms and then holding her tiny dog up under the belly all the time. And the Mm -hmm. dog was actually absorbing systemically those hormones. And even though it was spayed, was going through heat cycles. Oh, so. That should be an important part of the history. Uh, anytime we have a kind of a, a wacky thing like this going on, so it's important to note and have the owner change location of application to someplace that their clothes cover. <laughs> Sorry, moving on. Hide uh, them what, hormones. <laughs> yeah. What sorts of clinical signs uh, will we see in these guys? So polyuria or increased urination, polydipsia or increased thirst, lethargy, anorexia, vomiting, Vaginal discharge may not be evident if there's a closed pyometra, though. Physical exam findings include a pale mucous membrane, fever, lethargy, depression, dehydration, tachycardia, which is an increased heart rate, tachypnea, which is an increased respiratory rate, weak pulses, cardiac arrhythmias, abdominal pain, abdominal distension, uterine enlargement. And if sepsis is present, you'll see worse clinical signs, including the cardiac and respiratory changes and even collapse. Just be careful on abdominal palpation because forceful palpation may, might result in uterine rupture if it is severe. Mm. That's bad. Yeah. 
Yeah. In in open pyometra, sometimes discharge from the vulva is the only symptom. On the subject of abdominal palpation, in vet school, they used to say that in pyometra dogs, the abdomen will be doughy. And it was even like exam questions, like how will the abdomen feel? And you would like be like, check, doughy. But I never <laughs> knew what that meant. Then one day, as a young vet, I had my first doughy abdomen. And you really just can't describe it any other way. It feels like <laughs> you're stretching a ball of dough, like a pizza dough. So I felt at that dog's abdomen and I thought, like, this feels like almost like doughy. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, crap, feels doughy. And um, the, it ended up being a pyometra. So I was really excited when that happened because uh, it was like, well, I, you know, like this amorphous thing that you're just taught in vet school finally clicked in real life. But anyway, light bulb. Mm -hmm. If you want to understand what a doughy abdomen feels like, go to Publix, get that ball of dough that they have. <laughs> Roll it out a couple times and then just feel of it. And that's literally what the abdomen will feel like. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Probably not finding an, a patient with pyometra and have everybody feeling it as an educational tool, though. No. That mm -mm. might be bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a good point. Uh, you have to handle these guys with care because if it's been going on a, a while, especially in those closed ones, mm -hmm. they can rupture. And, uh, huh. I believe the case Dr. Plunkett talked about in, in our episode previously this season, uh, that case um, was ruptured. Mm. So it, you see it. It's very bad. Yep. So what changes will we uh, generally see on lab tests and what tests should be considered when a pyometer is suspected? Well, so just to start off, a minimum database. Like, as always, a minimum database includes a complete blood count a chemistry profile, and a urinalysis. So the blood count will often show a marked neutrophilia. So that means super high neutrophils. That neutrophilia is often more than 35,000 per microliter. And we'll often see a left shift, which as JJ mentioned earlier, is increased circulation of immature neutrophils. Um, basically what's happening is the bone marrow is getting signals from the body to be like, yo, we need more neutrophils stat, man, just pump them out. And the body actually ends up releasing them a little bit early. So that's why we see those immature cells in circulation. It's a result of increased demand. Uh, but sometimes the CBC results can be normal, especially if you're catching a pyometric case pretty early. Uh, sometimes the white blood cell count might not have caught up uh, to the pet. Like the pet's saying, hey, make more neutrophils, but the body hasn't quite gotten around to it yet. <laughs> and then sometimes the white blood cell count might be low. And I'll tell you that, in a pyometric case where the where the white blood cell count is low, I start to panic because that usually means that these white blood cells are being used up like at crazy rates. And then I start thinking about sepsis in those patients. Mm. And we might also see an anemia. So the anemia that we'll see um, is normocytic, meaning that the cells are normal size and shape. Normochromic, meaning that uh, they're the normal color. They have a normal amount of hemoglobin. And non-regenerative, meaning that the body has not started producing more to compensate yet. So it's the type of anemia that you actually see with like chronic disease. And I've seen a pyometra case come in with a profound anemia before. The patient had actually been being treated for an anemia and the pyometra had not yet been diagnosed. And so when we started looking into the reasons of like, why the heck is this dog anemic? Then I popped the ultrasound on the dog and I was like, oh, crap, it's got a pyometra. Mm. 
so that that dog uh, did actually fully recover. She needed a blood transfusion, and then she went to surgery, and then and then she did great. Good. On chemistry profile, we might see several types of changes. So we might see hyperglobulinemia. Globulin is a type of protein, and it is involved in inflammatory responses in the body. So when the globulin is high, it's a marker for inflammation in the body. We might see hypoalbuminemia. Albumin is an important protein, and so that protein might dip low in cases of pyometra where there is either more like systemic demand or sometimes all of the like the exudate and stuff that's accumulating in the uterus, like making all that has a protein demand. And so then the proteins in circulation might get low. For some reason, hypercholesterolemia, so an elevated cholesterol was uh, in the literature. Uh, I'm not sure about the pathogenesis of that. I have no idea why that happens. <laughs> if someone knows why pyometra dogs get a high cholesterol, I'd be super interested in yeah, that's weird. hearing about why. We'll see metabolic acidosis and then azotemia, which is increased kidney values. Now, that might come from a couple of different places. So, that E. coli endotoxin that can create changes to the kidneys can become bad enough that we have actually effects on the kidney values themselves. And then if you have a pyometra and you're feeling really puny, you might not be eating and drinking well, so then you can get dehydrated, and that also contributes to azotemia. The last thing that we'll see is increased liver enzymes. And then on a urinalysis, we'll often see isosthenuria. That means that uh, the urine concentration is lower than normal because of the effects of the bacterial endotoxins on the kidneys. We might see bacteria in the urine, especially if it's a free catch sample, because the uterus and the bladder share an exit uh, with one another. <laughs> we might actually be seeing bacteria coming out of the uterus and it get flushed out in a urine sample. We might see sugar in the urine, so glucosuria. And I believe this is because uh, of the changes in the kidney because that can create accidental glucose loss through the urine. And we might also see protein in the urine or proteinuria. And proteinuria can develop anytime there's severe inflammation in the body. So some tips uh, for urine collection. If you're going to get a cystocentesis in a pyometra patient, Try to use an ultrasound so that you can avoid puncturing the uterus with a needle. Very important. Mm. I actually know of a case where they actually thought that the pet was going to have a UTI and just kind of blind palpated and stuck and were getting this crazy pus out of what they thought was the bladder. It, it was a pyometra and they were mm. sticking the uterus. A midstream urine sample um, often won't be helpful because we can see it contaminated with bacteria from the vaginal discharge like we mentioned earlier. But we can also see concurrent UTI, like that can happen uh, in pyometra. So in a perfect world, use the ultrasound, stick the bladder, or, you know, alternatively, if you're really worried about UTI and you really want to make sure that you have a sterile sample to answer the question about UTI versus no UTI, you could collect a sample while you're in surgery is the other option. So on radiographs, we're going to see an enlarged uterus. This is going to appear as a mass effect between the bladder and the colon. Um, we might also see displacement of the abdominal organs, depending on how big the uterus gets. Mm. And then it can be a little bit difficult to differentiate pyometra from other causes of a big uterus on x-ray alone. For example, early pregnancy. 
uh, in early pregnancy, the fetal skeletons won't be mineralized yet. So you can't see the puppies, but uh, so it can be easy to mistake with x-rays alone. Sometimes patients with pyometra have pretty normal x-rays. Again, it just depends on the size of the uterus. In one study, pyometra was accurately diagnosed based on x-rays in 72.3% of cats and 58.7% of dogs. The other imaging option you have is ultrasound, and ultrasound is very good at diagnosing pyometra when you have the ultrasound in the right hands. So in one study, pyometra was accurately diagnosed based on ultrasound in 93% of dogs and 78% of cats. So in this study, they show that ultrasound was more useful than x-rays to diagnose pyometra. When you're looking with the ultrasound, you're going to see this distended uterine body with fluid hanging out, and that fluid might be anywhere from hypoechoic to hyperechoic. It's it's very characteristic appearance on ultrasound. So if you guys get a pyometra case in and you get it diagnosed and you're less familiar with ultrasound, before you take it to surgery, slap that ultrasound probe, if you have one, onto the belly and look around and get used to, to identifying it because it can be super helpful in in identifying these guys later on. Now, sometimes hormone tests are performed. Uh, in pyometra cases, progesterone levels are often high. I actually haven't ever done this. I just read about it. Most of the time in my experience, pyometra cases are like, you know, exam, this is definitely pyometra, and then we just take it to surgery. You know, we, we wouldn't wait for like progesterone levels to come back, mm-hmm. you know. Cytology of the uterine uh, or vaginal discharge is going to show large numbers of degenerate neutrophils with phagocytosed bacteria, so bacteria that have been eaten by those white blood cells. And then sometimes we do cultures, but you shouldn't really culture a swab of the vaginal canal. If you were going to culture, you would want to culture transcervically or once you hopefully take the uterus out with surgery, culture the fluid from the inside of it Mm -hmm. don't just culture a random vaginal swab (laughs) sounds like a band name random vaginal swab (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) does it though (laughs) (laughs) okay so tell me the difference between pyometra in cats and versus dogs okay well i'm gonna do cats first because cats (laughs) are the best Cats tend to have a lower incidence of pyometra overall compared to dogs. This might be because cats are induced ovulators and they are not under the influence of progesterone for extended periods of time. So induced ovulator means that the cat goes into heat, breeds with the male, but the act of copulation or act of physically breeding with the male is what stimulates the ovulation to occur. It's possible that continuous estrogen stimulation that occurs in queens, so those are intact female kitties, is the main contributing factor of development of pyometria in the cat. That's different in the dog, as we'll talk about in a minute. Some individuals repeatedly undergo ovulation spontaneously, followed by a period of progesterone elevation due to pseudopregnancy, which is false pregnancy. So that might contribute. There's an increased risk of pyometra with age in cats, and there's a significant increase after about seven years of age. And there's this one study, quite a big study, over 140,000 cats in this study, and it showed a breed predisposition in the oriental and exotic breeds. There does not appear to be a correlation between the development of pyometra 
and the age at first breeding, the age at first pregnancy, or the total number of litters produced. JJ is going to talk to us about pyometra in dogs. They have a relatively long diastrous phrase that is progesterone dominant, and this makes them uniquely predisposed to pyometra. Progesterone creates changes in the uterus that increases the risk of pyometra, including uterine stromal and glandular proliferation, leukocyte inhibition, decreased myometrial contractions, and a closed cervix. These effects are then exasperated by estrogen and the proesters and estrus phases. The risk of uterine infection increases with each estrus cycle because the hormone changes are cumulative. There's also been a recent discovery of canine endometritis. Studies have shown that some dogs who are less fertile than expected will culture positive for bacteria in the uterus even though they do not have symptoms of pyometra. In some cases, this may progress over time to pyometra. Dogs are also usually over seven years of age at diagnosis. And one study showed that the most affected breeds are the Burmese Mountain Dog, Rottweiler, and Rough-Coated Collie. These breeds have roughly twice the incidence over other breeds. And other reported breed predispositions include the King Charles Cavalier Spaniel and the Golden Retriever. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not the good dog. So, Dr. G, how is the pyometra treated? To treat a pyometra, you spay the patient. (laughs) Easy enough. Yep. Uh, Seriously, though, uh, spaying the patient is strongly recommended, okay? Now, especially you want to spay the patient when there is sepsis, when the uterus has ruptured, when there is peritonitis, which is like infection inside the abdomen. Uh, Anytime there's a closed pyometra, it works better to spay the animal. Uh, And then if you have fetal remains, so like a fetus has been in there, it's died, and it's hanging around in the uterus, it's going to be really hard to resolve that without just taking the uterus out. Please just take the the uterus out, okay? Just Just take take it it away. Patients need to be stabilized before surgery with IV fluid therapy, and they need to give um, uh, IV antibiotics preoperatively and perioperatively. Now, sometimes people want to keep the uterus, okay? So medical therapy can be tried. It's not reasonable in in many cases, I would argue, but it can be tried. If you're wanting to try it, uh, it might be reasonable to try medical therapy in young breeding animals that are not systemically ill with their pyometra. You would never want to use medical therapy if the patient is not going to be used for breeding in the future because why does it need, it doesn't need the uterus, okay? And pyometra can happen more than one time. And it also is deadly, so just take it out. Anyway, okay, medical therapy. (laughs) So the goal of medical therapy is to remove the progesterone influence so that we can allow the cervix to open get the uterus to contract, and get the gross stuff out so that we can decrease the local inflammatory response. So there's some drugs that can be used to do that, and they include prostaglandin F2-alpha, dopamine agonists like capergolide, and progesterone receptor antagonists. Pyometra can happen again in these patients because they still have a uterus, so you have to manage them very closely long-term. And the second that you're done breeding them, flip and spay them. Mm-hmm. Just take the uterus. Yeah, bye. <laughs> These guys also need antibiotics. And then some additional alternative therapies that have been described. Uh, this is kind of upsetting to read, but I mean, uh-huh. this is where we're at. It's going to maybe cringe a little bit, just FYI. 
Uh, so catheterization of the cervix to allow the stuff to drain. Uh, transcervical endoscopy to instill a warm saline solution containing prostaglandin F2-alpha. She basically like using an endoscope to go past the cervix. Sorry for that. And um, then put solution into the actual uterus and then allow it to hang out in there. And then uh, you can also drain the uterus with a rigid pipette through the cervix. That sounds terrible. Followed by lavage with a povidone iodine solution. And then you would administer prostaglandin F2-alpha in those cases as well. Again, overall takeaways. Um, spaying the patient is going to work the best. Please do that unless you just have to save the uterus for some reason yeah my cervix is offended by all of that. i know my i my cervix is highly offended <laughs> Ugh, just, just i mean uh, that equipment is overrated just just, just take it just take it away why okay jj what is the prognosis for survival from pyometra uh it's pretty good it's pretty good as long as it's detected before the uterine ruptures <laughs> which i mean that's a lot of things is probably good before that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with surgical therapy, post-operative mortality is pretty low at 5 to 8%. However, with uterine rupture, the mortality rate increases to 50%. Yeah, that's why and medical therapy is reasons. not. Yeah, I mean, medical <laughs> therapy, again, not indicated. If you have a uterine rupture, you got to take that out because <laughs> even taking it out, they only survive 50% of the time. Sorry, go you ahead. Take it out and hose everywhere it's been because mm-hmm. you. Mm. Okay. Um, patients Sorry. with uh, severe azotemia have worse prognosis. Yeah. Uh, complications of pyometra occur in about 20% of patients. Those complications can include a UTI, thromboembolic disease, osteomyelitis, pericarditis, septic arthritis, urethral trauma. Yee. Urinary incontinence, sepsis, uterine rupture, stump pyometra, and incisional swelling or dehiscence. None of that sounds like a good time. No, no. Prevention is mainly achieved by spaying your pets so that you don't um, have a uterus to get infected. So if you're not intending uh, to breed your patient, spay your patient. (laughs) In cats who can't be spayed for whatever reason, a long-acting reversible contraception like a GnRH analog could be considered. And in dogs who cannot be spayed for some reason, estrus suppression therapy can be used to decrease the number of cycles that the bitch has and therefore hopefully reduce the chances of a pyometra developing. (laughs) So let's bring it back around to our kitty cat patient, Molly. JJ, what happened with Molly's case? Molly was admitted to the hospital and given IV fluid therapy. She was spayed under general anesthesia. Cefazolin was given pre-op and intra-op IV, and she recovered uneventfully. She was started on oral clavamox and buprenorphine postoperatively, and by the next day was back to normal and had normal renal values and made a full recovery. Awesome! Yay, Molly. (laughs) Yay, Molly. Good job, Molly. (laughs) No more stinking up the joint with your little droppings. Your weird (laughs) uterine smears all over the house. It's gross. Oh, Oh, no. I'm so glad. What an interesting case. (laughs) That that was full of twists and turns. It had everything. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I think that brings us to close out our episode today. Thank you for joining us. If you have stories 
cases, questions, submissions for the advice column, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. For 2021, we've created a listener survey. If everyone would fill it out, we'd be very thankful. You can find the survey at introvets.com slash survey. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.